from a little blog called Rainy Day Food Stores. She's a uh, Shelf Reliance consultant and uh, sells Shelf Reliance prod product. That's not what she's on at all. I think we mentioned the, the name of the company once or twice during the interview. What she's come up with is a really great way and formula for making meals in a jar. So that you can take all those number 10 cans, and it doesn't matter whether it's Shelf Reliance or whether it's dehydrated vegetables from like uh, Harmony House, which I love, or... Uh, Mountain House or whoever you get the stuff from, but it's basically a formula. It says, you know, you need a cup of something like this you know, out of these different categories, and you put them together, and you got these meals in a jar. And you just reach up and grab one and make it, and if you need more, you grab two of that and do it. And then all of this stuff, this, this you know, the huge giant cans becomes broken down into pieces, parts where it's usable. You get used to using it. Well, That's great. Now, I have had lately, and it's just because we're reaching more people, I think, and more people are getting switched on to the fact that something needs to be done in their lives to be more prepared. And I get a lot of emails that start out with, I just found out, or I just learned, or I just found your podcast, and stuff like that, or I just realized, or I've just come to the understanding. Anything that starts like that goes into the next sentence. And I don't know where to start, and I'm overwhelmed. So I've been getting a lot of requests for kind of like, Can you do a, just a basic show? And I thought, you know, the best way to do that would be a 25, 30-minute show. Don't give too much information to a person like that because what they need is concise and, and bolted down. So I'm going to leave the show off today. Instead of Jennifer's interview, I'm going to do kind of a let's get started. And I think this will help people, even people that are well into their walk, come back and reassess and find the holes. And I think that it will help people that want to talk to others about preparedness that don't feel they maybe need to go through this exercise. It'll help you do that and better spread the message of preparedness. And these jar meals are a great way to do that, by the way, as well. Uh, and then I think that all of the people that feel overwhelmed, you know, at different, even like brand new, but people can be months into this and have had a lot of things done and they still feel overwhelmed, come back, reassess, and get over that. So that you can make this a positive, enjoyable experience. Prepping should be positive and enjoyable. It should make your life better even if nothing goes wrong. If it's not doing those two things, if you're not enjoying it, and it ain't making your life better, you ain't prepping the right way. We're going to talk about that today. Before we do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day, number one today, Fortress Defense Consultants. Um, I'm trying not to make the recent shooting about gun rights, though we're going to have to at some point because... The people opposed to your ownership of firearms are literally salivating. This is as horrible as the event is. They're saying this is a crisis they don't want to go to waste. And one of the best ways we can defend the Second Amendment is to be law-abiding, gun-owning citizens that are well-trained and, and good at our craft. So that if we happen to be in a place where we get an opportunity to stop something like this, that we're able to do it. Frank Sharp Jr. at Fortress Defense Consultants will give you the training that you need to be able to do just that. There's another type of training there, though. 
I keep hearing people say, what if the teachers were armed? I, I don't think in this society that's going to happen wholesale. It has happened in one county in Texas, by the way. But very few places are going to be okay with that, even though it's probably a good idea. But I just wonder how many children could be saved in some event like this if people knew basic um, emergency first aid for gunshot victims. Because the first aid classes that a teacher gets are for choking on stuff. It's not for dealing with somebody hemorrhaging. Frank Sharp Jr. will teach you emergency response medical care, which may be more important in saving a life than carrying a gun. And if you're going to carry a gun and you're ever in a place you need to use it, even if everything works out for you, even if the bad guy's down and out, it's a very good possibility that the next thing you need to worry about is somebody laying on the ground in pain dying, and you might need to save their life. If you're going to carry a tool capable of causing death, you need to carry the knowledge to save lives with it. I really believe that. I think those two types of training go together, and there's not a better place I know of to get them than Frank Sharp Jr. and Fortress Defense Consultants. Next up, the Berkey guy, Jeff Gleason. Hey, you know what? We're going to talk about six primary survival needs today. One of them's water, and it's the one we probably need the most and one we probably on the edge of take the most for granted because you turn the faucet, it comes out. Well, there's times when the water that comes out of that faucet isn't safe to drink anymore. It happens all the time. They call them boil water advisories. And generally, they issue those after they figured it out, which means you've been drinking it. Uh, there's also things in water that I don't want there, like chlorine and fluoride, that you can get rid of uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. And someday, that water might not even come out of that tap. So if you go to the Berkey guy, you'll get Berkey water filtration systems. You'll be able to take care of that water on a day-to-day -day basis and be able to make just about any water safe to drink in a crisis situation. Check out Jeff's site today. It's at directive21.com. Again, directive, and then the number's 21.com. The best way, to though, to visit Fortress Defense, Berkey Guy, and everybody that is a Survival Podcast sponsor would be go to thesurvivalpodcast.com, click on their banner in the right-hand margin, and that way you know you're dealing with one of our actual sponsors that carry an actual endorsement by me and has been approved by our listener ad council. Last but not least, do consider joining the member support brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content, you get videos, you get discounts. I say it all the time, you know that. Military law enforcement discount. I'm going to let it go because we've gone long on the intro. I want to get into this. I want to talk about just kind of let's start out with how do people get into this mindset where they just kind of lock up. What happens that gets you to the overwhelmed uh, category? What What is it? And here's, here's what it is. One way or another, you figure out, whether it's because you watch TV and see people suffering through Hurricane Sandy and diving in a dumpster, and you think that person a day ago would have walked around that dumpster just to not smell it, and now they're climbing into it, and I don't want that to be me. Or, you know, long ago, Hurricane Katrina woke up a lot of people. You see a tragedy happen, like this school shooting, and think, what if that happened in 20 places on one day due to a terrorist attack? You learn about the economy of the United States, and you realize that we're on the knife's edge continuously, and it's only a matter of time before the knife either cuts us or we fall over one side or the other. One way or another, you come to a realization that this thing that you've been walking around with called normalcy bias is going to hurt you in the end if you don't take responsibility for yourself. You come into touch with a very human instinct. That is the survival instinct. It's why I refuse to call this the Prepper Podcast. It's why I called it the Survival Podcast from day one. Humans are hardwired to survive 
If we were not, we would have all been gone a long time ago. So survivalism is not what the media tells you, and it's not what the nut jobs that say, oh, I'm a real survivalist, is. Survivalism is an innate, hardwired response in the human body to continue. In other words, if a truck is hauling ass down the road at you and about to smack you and run your ass over, what are you going to do? Are you going to stand there and look at it, or are you going to get out of the way? That's the survival instinct kicking in. If you see something that looks dangerous, even if it interests you, you approach it with caution. If it seems to be, once you've done that, really dangerous, you back off it. That's survival instinct. So you are hardwired for that, and you, you experience it every day. You, you look both ways before you cross the street. If you see something that looks like it can burn you, you don't touch it with your bare hands. If you do, you only do it once, and once you get burned, you don't do it again. The self-preservation mode is operable in the human mind. When you expose yourself to the danger that you've been experiencing your entire life blindly, it doesn't feel good. And people take two responses to it. Damn it, go away, I'm going to cover my ears, close my eyes and say it's not true, and I'll keep saying it until I convince myself of it, or acceptance. And many people go through denial and then anger, and just like the five stages of grief, eventually you get to acceptance. Some people never process through and go back to being blind sheep. But assuming you've gotten to the acceptance stage of this component, which is I need to do something, then you say to yourself, well, I'm going to go out and find out what to do and what everybody else does. And you go out and you start looking at information, you buy a book, and you, you realize this is like a $100,000 problem, and, and your person makes $20,000 a year, and you're worried about paying the bills next week. And you start thinking, I can't do this. Or even if you have means, you start, maybe you go out and buy a bunch of stuff and put it away, and you realize, I still don't know what the hell I'm doing. But one way or another, you get to a point where you just go, I, I just don't really know what I need to do. And it seems like the more I learn, the more I learn about this exposure, the worse it feels, the more I need to compensate, and the more I get lost. And the way we pull all that back in is through what I call order of probability of disaster. So... I'm going to tell you something that seems counterintuitive until you really think about the fact you've probably already experienced things at the individual level, and you certainly know people who have, probably very close and personal. The less number of people affected by a disaster, the more likely it is to happen to you tomorrow morning right after you wake up. And what I mean by that is you're more likely to lose your job tomorrow than have the entire United States economy collapse into oblivion. You are more likely, God forbid, to lose a spouse tomorrow or find out that one of you has this debilitating, crippling illness that's only going to go downhill. You are more likely to have your kids seriously injured, or maybe even, God forbid, I hate saying this, but you got to be in touch with reality, killed, or have a spouse killed, or something that only affects you, or have your house catch on fire, not your whole neighborhood. All of these things are statistically more likely to happen to you tomorrow morning than something that even remotely affects the person next door to you, just one house over. And then that's the next thing that's most likely to happen. It's something that's going to affect you and your neighbor on both sides or your neighborhood, small area disaster, a tornado touchdown, a flooding event, a fire that spreads from building to building, a localized riot that's something to do with the neighborhood and people going nuts if you're in the wrong area or even the, what seems like the right area or something like a school shooting. 
Right? Those are the things that are then statistically most likely to happen to you as an individual. Not any one of them, but something from that category. Okay? And how many people know somebody who had a house fire and it burned down a neighbor's house? Or know somebody that was hit by storms that ripped up a whole neighborhood with a, with a wind shear or a downburst? Or something like that. Or know somebody that a whole neighborhood was flooded. I mean, it, this is just stuff that happens all the time. As we expand out from there to something that's more at like your city, county level, a fairly large regional disaster, the odds of you experiencing it go down, but the impact goes up. And that's where people start to get scared. And then when we look at something like a state-level, multi-state-level disaster like a Hurricane Sandy, okay, a Hurricane Katrina, a Hurricane Andrew, an earthquake, a tsunami, a nuclear event that's somewhat contained like Fukushima, all of those things, the odds are down even further that you're going to experience it, but the impact is even higher and the need to be prepared even higher. And then you get up to the global disaster, which is something like if the U.S. economy doesn't just rebase and have a big depression but actually melts, that's global. It's global Every currency is in deep crap. That's a global depression, a global economic meltdown right now. Now, the rest of the world is working hard to change that and to get to a point where they can decouple themselves from the dollar, but that's where we're at now. Or some kind of huge, massive event like a meteor or asteroid impact that causes a global calamity, but it ain't enough to kill everybody right away. Uh, or a global, massive, high-lethality pandemic Those are the least likely that you will ever experience, but the highest impact. So they're the scariest. So where does everybody start with their head? They start at the low probability, high impact end of the spectrum, which is exactly opposite of what we should be doing. If it takes the re realization of any of those events to wake you up, great, they've done their job, Now put them under the table and let's back all the way up to the individual disaster. And if we start there, all of a sudden it gets a lot easier. Because here's all we have to do. We take that knowledge and we couple it with the fact that as human beings we have six primary needs to survive. And they're all important. Some you could say are more important. But in the end, the lack of any one of them can make you miserable or dead. Some quicker than others. But they're all really important. And here they are. Food, water, shelter, energy, security. And then I have combined health and sanitation into one. Because they are intrinsically linked. If you can't deal with your waste and the sewers aren't working, you're going to get sick. If you get sick, you're going to have trouble dealing. It's, it's conjoined. Do you know what the number one killer in the world is during disasters? Dehydration. Do you know what people die of? What, what causes the dehydration? Diarrhea. Do you know what causes the diarrhea? Unsanitary water. So if we get sanitation and a little bit of medical supplies in, we avoid something so simple and stupid. And this is what you need to understand. The people in Haiti that died of diarrhea and dehydration while they were drinking infected water after the earthquake aren't some kind of distant third cousin to normal human beings. They're just like you. Their biology works just the same way, and it'll kill you just as dead as it killed them. 
Maybe they were in a more precarious position where it was easier to drop down to that level, but drop down to that level here in America, and just as many people die just as fast. It is disease and illness caused by poor sanitation are indiscriminate killers. They don't care where you live, where you're from, what your bank balance is, how much you have stored up, how many guns you have, how much ammo. They don't care about any of that. They kill you dead because that's how it works. So we need to address those. So all we have to do to get ourselves into the right frame of mind to move forward is start out with a basic, honest assessment and a few questions. So what we can do, go into your house, shut off all the lights. If you have to go this far to understand the predicament, get some paper tape or something like that. Tape all the toilets closed. Tape all the light switches. Do Anything you're going to just naturally try to use during this experiment, do something to remind yourself that it's not available. Take your keys, put them in a drawer somewhere, tape the drawer shut. You're not, you can't take your car anywhere. You're stuck at home. And you're in a good situation in a way because there's no fire outside. There's the roof still on the house. You're just in a basic. I have to stay put. And in your do this for an hour and with a list and write stuff down. But in your head, think I'm going to have to do this for two weeks. Start looking at all the food in your cabinet. Start looking at all the food in your refrigerator. Start thinking to yourself, I got about two to three days to get the food in this refrigerator and freezer either eaten or cooked or it's going to go bad. How would I do that? Now, we've talked about some backup power and all, but if you're just getting started and you don't have that yet, start with that in mind. I'm going to have to use this first. Start looking at all the storable food in your house, all the stuff that's not requiring refrigeration, and start writing it down on a pad. How long could I feed us with this? And, and how bland would it get and boring how fast? But how long would we be able to survive? You'll be surprised. We talk all the time. We hear people in the preparedness industry. The average home, people can only survive for three days. That's nonsense. The average home in America with a basic cupboard and a refrigerator, if you're not a kitchenista in New York City, keeping shoes in your oven and closing your refrigerator, and they do that. If you're not one of those people, the average family home in America can go a week to two weeks. They're not going to be happy about it, but you'll get in touch with that. Then start saying to yourself, okay, the water doesn't come on. How much water do I have? Where is my water? What's available to me? Start thinking about that. Write down everything that that brings to mind for you, including things you're afraid of, because we're going to kill the fear with this exercise. All right, now move on to shelter. Okay, you still have a roof over your head. We're going to let some of that go for right now, but I want you to think about this. If it's really hot outside, shut your air conditioner off for 30 minutes. Get in touch with it. If it's really cold outside, shut your heat off for just 30 minutes and get in touch with it. If it's a good time of year, just think about the fact that you have those two things to deal with. How would you keep warm, and how would you do your best at keeping cool? The warm's easier than the cool. Just ask yourself the question, and think of everything you'd like to have to deal with that situation, and don't try to go, I want a, a, a 50K generator, military generator in my backyard humming along with 10 years worth of diesel fuel. Because you ain't never going to have that. Diesel gener the military generator ain't going to phase right with your home anyway. Don't buy one for that. And, and it's just not going to happen. So don't go that far. Just think, I only got to do this two weeks. What would I want to get by two weeks? Along that line, you're coming right into energy. 
So, I mean, a way to do this is write down on you know each page of a notebook, food, water, shelter, energy, security, sanitation, health. Go through them one at a time and flip back and forth. Leave a few pages in between each one, okay? Say to yourself when you get to the energy, how would we light the way? We have batteries and flashlights. How long are they going to last? Start thinking, how could I keep this refrigerator running for two hours a day? Just two hours a day, we'll, we'll kind of float it through. Start thinking about things like ice. If I could make ice, then I could use coolers, right? But you're also thinking at this stage, all you need to do is keep that food fresh long enough till you use it. Because you might as well start using it because that goes right back to your food availability. As you start thinking about energy, you'll start thinking about lighting, heating, and cooling. Those are going to be your big ones. And cooking. Start thinking, what could I use to cook? What? And, and this is the big thing. In all of these scenarios... I don't want you to, to, to go too much with what I need. I want you to figure out what you have that will already do this. If you have a gas grill outside, even with just one five-pound propane tank in it, as long as it's full, you can cook for a long time. And if you've got a side burner on that grill, you're even better. If you've got a charcoal grill, either as opposed to or in addition to that gas grill, and there's a couple hundred pounds of charcoal out there, you've got something. And you may decide, I need to up that material, that fuel. But now I've got a plan. I'm starting to put a plan together. So think on the energy. What is, what is my plan with what I already have? And that will lead you to the most logical thing for you personally to add next because your needs for energy are vastly different if you're in Vermont and I'm in Texas. So we need to do this individual assessment. Then we're going to come to security. I want you to pretend for a minute that you don't live in a nice place in the suburbs or that nice place in the suburbs has become the not so nice place. I want you to think there are people out there that are in the same situation. I want you to think about the mindset you're in now. None of this stuff works and I can't go anywhere and get more. Okay, And when I run out, I'm out. And the police aren't going to come. Or if they do, it's going to take them longer than normal to get here. And other people that are in a worse situation than me may want what I have and may want to do harm to me and my family. And don't hide from this reality. Don't hide from this reality. Security is the survival need that we take for granted absolutely the most because we can generally, in the society we have today, live without it for a hundred years if we're lucky, fall over and die of old age, and never even think about it and be okay. But the second the security apparatus of society fails, that changes. And even when the apparatus is in place, this is the thing that's the most dangerous about security. You can do without it forever, but if you ever actually need it, you can only do without it for a hundredth of a hundredth of a second. It's about how long it takes a knife blade to slit your throat or a bullet to pierce your heart or a club to cave in your head. So it is the most important and overlooked aspect that we're talking about today. How would you defend your home? How would you better secure your home? What would you do? What do you have? Do you already have a gun? Great. Do you have ammo for it? Do you know how to use it? Do you know the law in your area as to when lethal force can and cannot be used? Start finding the hole, find what you have and then find the holes in what you have and plug the holes in what you already have before you add new stuff. Okay? 
And so that takes you through security on a very basic level. And I could do two, three, four hours on improving security. I've done whole shows on it. But this starts to get the mind around the problem. So you might come away from this with, I have a gun, I need training, I need ammo, and I need to brush up on laws, right? I need to get a gun, get training, blah, 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 right? Or gun's not an option for me, so here's my other options. What is everything in your house that could be used as an improvised weapon? What is everything in your home that could be used to improve the security of your doorway? If you are in a situation, think to yourself, how could we behave differently so we're not so vulnerable? All of a sudden you start to realize, well, one of the first things we can do is if we do go outside of the house, no one goes alone. There's never one person. And we're going to be situationally aware. Just start to write. This is a journal process. It'll lead you. I don't have to tell you where it'll lead you. If you do it, it'll lead you there. Then start to think about sanitation and health. I want you to really do this. I want you to take a big piece of paper, like masking tape, and just go in your bathroom and tape the lid of the toilet shut and imagine that it won't flush. No matter what you do, well, the sewer is backed up and stopped. Think about the implications of that and start to ask yourself, well, what could I do? Well, a simple thing you could do is go down to Walmart, get a great big thing of trash bags, a five-gallon bucket, and a toilet seat, and a whole bunch of the bottles of the blue stuff that they use in an RV. And it's gross and it's disgusting, but it'll get you through a couple weeks, and at least now i got a plan for that. What's your longer plan? Is it dig a latrine in your backyard? Well, maybe even if you don't do it, maybe dig a hole is part of the plan. Maybe you create something that could be a latrine quickly if you needed one in a long-term situation because you may have to stay put, and that may be your only option. And piling it up in the backyard like the dog does will not work. It's very dangerous. It's a very big sanitation issue. I want you to think. Somebody has not you know, a sucking chest wound or cut the femoral artery or something like that because to be honest with you, unless you have a surgeon right there with everything they need, and even then still sometimes you're dead, okay? But you have a fairly severe cut or wound. It needs to be treated. It needs to be have pressure on it. Basic first aid. You can't go anywhere. If you call the ambulance, they're not coming. What would you do? What do you already have? What do you already have? Start writing a plan based on what you have and start plugging the holes. And this is what's going to happen. You're going to start realizing there's certain medications I need. There's certain security things that I need. There's certain sanitation things that I need. We definitely got to have more water. We're going to need a water filter, right? And what will happen is you're thinking, okay, well, Jack said the most likely thing that could happen is, you know, we could have a, a job loss. So how does this stuff all start to fit into that? Okay, the water filtration and the water sanitation and all isn't that huge, but it is there. The knowledge that, hey, I cut myself, we don't have health insurance, that really doesn't need stitches. I have everything here to take care of it. Might help a little bit. But the food and the water, I mean the food, the food is 100% relevant to a job loss. If I have stored food and I'm eating what I store and storing what I eat, I have one thing I don't have to pay for. Shelter. When we look at shelter in the modern world, we need to not just think about building a bivouac and living like an Indian or something like that. You understand that your shelter, unless it's blown down or burned down or something like that, is your house. 
And you need to think about the fact that you need that shelter intact, and that means you need to be allowed to stay there. Where's that going to lead you with a job loss? You need to make sure you're living as close to debt-free as possible and that your home's as affordable as possible, and there's a cash reserve to ensure the dwelling. So that's going to mean that we're going to have to start thinking about getting out of debt and putting aside money so that we could pay for this thing three or four months at least if somebody loses or both of us lose our job. With or without unemployment, depending on where we're at. With or without taking a second job, however you're going to do it for yourself. But that's going to start to just hold that up. As we start to look at the energy issue and we start to do things with backup power, if we do it smart, we can slowly transition into some things that actually can cut the cost of an electric bill, which would help us with a job loss. Security is always important no matter what. But we start to firm up that core, and then we start to realize that, you know what, as we firm that core up and we just build on it, it's really easy to transition into what would we do if the whole neighborhood was shut down for a couple of weeks. And then we can build from there. If you start that way, if you think that way, you will not do something stupid. You will not order a pallet full of food from a long-term storage company, stick it in your garage and go, I feel good, but I don't know why and I don't know what to do with it, and now I need 400 guns. You won't do that. You have to start with yourself, unique to your individual situation. This is your starting point. Your home where you live with your systems disrupted, what do you have that will fill the holes in when that system's disrupted and where are you lacking? Then you prioritize your holes based on what's most important to you and fill them in. You make a list of your deficiencies. You put them in order of what's most important, most probable based on your risk assessment. You fill those holes in. When you get that done, which might take you three or four months or longer, or you may fill in 90%, but you're still working on the debt thing as the real long-term one, and I've got that kind of on a plan. It's going to take two years, but there's the plan. I've got that. Everything else I've sorted. Okay, do it again. Just do the whole exercise again. Get Go forward in the notebook. Write down food, water, shelter, you know. Uh, energy, security, sanitation, and health with a few pages and start the whole process over again. It'll do two things. It'll make you feel really good because you realize how far you've come. It'll come up with a whole new list of holes, prioritize the holes to your individual needs, and start filling them in yet again. And I'll do a show probably first part of next year where I will talk about some inexpensive ways to fill the holes, cheap ways Easy ways to address food storage. Cheap ways, easy ways to address water. Smart, simple, easy ways to make your home more secure, especially during a grid-down situation. Uh, smart, simple, easy ways to care about sanitation and health and make sure that you have the ability to treat illness and disease on your own if you have to for a short or long-term period of time. Thought smart, easy ways to do this with energy. Stephen Harris just did the battery shows. Oh, how simple. A good charger, some DC stuff, and one deep cycle battery. That can solve a lot of problems right there. And you can make that your mobile DC only thing and one day just add an inverter to it and you can do a little bit more with it. 
And you can make that. That's, that's redundancy on energy number one. Go get yourself a little generator. Now you can charge the battery when the grid's down, not just use the energy you've banked while the grid was up, plus you have the generator. That's redundancy two. Now build a large battery bank. That's redundancy three. That can either be in the back of your truck like I'm going to do or in your house. And wire a solar panel or to it or something else. That's redundancy four. Okay, We can stage that out. And each one of those stages can be filling one hole in one, one cycle. So we've gone through the first cycle. We have an energy problem. We don't even think about, you know, if we don't have the money, the resources, the time, we don't even think about the large-scale battery bank and solar panel yet. One marine-grade battery, one good battery charger, all little accessories. We're at $150, bucks, 200 bucks. Hole filled, done. I'm going to the next hole in this cycle. Food. Okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take the first step in some long-term food storage, and I'm going to go buy uh, uh, ten or, or five different types of meats and five different types of vegetables and number ten cans. I'm going to put those aside, right? At least I'm going to have them. Or maybe even cheaper. I'm going to go out and buy a big sack of rice, a big sack of beans, a big bunch of pasta, and I'm going to put those things into five-gallon buckets, and I'm going to say whole filled for now. I'm going to figure out if I made a meal consisting of X, Y, and Z with this, what needs to go with it, a few canned foods to go with it, a few accessories and seasonings to go with that. That's how many meals that is whole filled for now. You're not done. You're just done with that cycle. Fill all the holes. Repeat. Wash, rinse, repeat. Just like the shampoo bottle. And then you'll come back through again. And you know what? It's a perfect lead-in. You'll think, I got all of this long-term storage food now. I need to start. Now, one of my holes with my food storage isn't the volume but knowing how to use it and cook with it. What do I do with it? Well, how about you break it up into a bunch of stuff, put it in some quart jars, and make you know basically your own meals ready to eat off the shelf that tastes better than anything you'll ever get with the words MRE on it. And what a great point to transition. So at this time, I'd like to introduce our special guest to talk about doing just that. Her name is Jennifer S. And again, I'm not using some cognito thing with just the letter S. It's S-E-S-S. She has a blog called Rainy Day Food Storage. She's a really awesome lady with some awesome ideas, and I'm really glad to have her with us here today on TSP to help you take this getting started thing to a little bit more of a higher level and to start doing it in a way that makes it seem, well, frankly, very normal, very cool, and very easy then to share with your family members. And with that, hey, Jennifer, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here today. Hey, um, I was looking at your site kind of to get ready for this interview. We're here today to talk about making meals in jars using freeze-dried and dehydrated foods. Um, you got a lot of great stuff there. Could you just start out with, though, like, how did you get into this? Why, you know, why do you even think along the lines of being prepared and, and stuff like that? What, what led you here? Um, I started paying attention to all the disasters that were happening. Um, I think it started with Katrina, and then we started having more earthquakes like uh, Haiti, Christchurch, New Zealand, um, and Japan. And after Japan, I felt like I really needed to start a food storage for my own family. And uh, so I started looking into it and trying to figure out how to how to cook with freeze-dried and dehydrated ingredients, and there was just nothing out there. So I began to try to figure it out on my own. And I was lucky enough to have a friend who is a chef. And uh, 
we just kind of started uh, with the basic sauce mixes and kind of worked our way way through it with uh, trying to come up with a formula in order to create these meals where you would just have to add water uh, and that they had a long um, shelf life and that you could use them in emergencies or camping or whatever you'd like to use them for. You know, if you lost your job, you'd still have like a food storage section to fall back on. So as uh, time went on, I, you know, was collecting all of these uh, um, freeze-dried food, and I didn't know what to do with it. So I thought, well, I better figure it out right quick, just in case anything were to happen. And uh, so that is pretty much uh, how I started. I started to, to create the meals for my family, and then I decided to write a blog um, in order to help other people who are in the same situation because there just wasn't anything out there on how to cook with this stuff. So that's basically how I started. Now, you know, you're kind of skinning a cat that needs to be skinned, so to speak, here, because like you, I'm a big fan of the large freeze-dried stuff. Uh, I know you're a big friend, a fan of the Thrive brand. I am as well. I think their quality is just outstanding. Um, but you buy this big, giant number 10 can of freeze-dried broccoli or beef chunks or ham chunks. And I think a lot of people are hesitant to, you know, open that puppy up and learn how to use it in the everyday world. And then, you you know, they're just sitting there with this giant chunk of, of food. So what I see you doing with these meals in a jar is taking this big, giant can and spreading it across multiple meals so that it can be used regularly, so people do become accustomed to it. So it's not something strange when you have to rely on it, right? Yes, that's correct. Um, by making the meals in a jar... Um, they're ready to go. Um, I mean, if you were to have an emergency situation, you could just pull your jars, or you could do it also in mylar bags, um, and you would you would just be able to take and go, and and not have to worry about uh, recipes or cooking everything because it's all right there for you. So then all you have to do is add water, and you're good to go. Is you mentioned mylar there, and I was going to ask you that. Is there a reason you chose glass jars? Uh, as kind of your your presentation online, I mean, it's prettier than Mylar bag, and but you know a glass jar can break. But I guess the other side of it is if you build shelving that fits jars, then everything fits and it's always the same size. Was there was that part of the reason, or does it just have something to do with the jars always the same size? So I don't have to measure as much. I mean, what, what's going on there? Uh, when I created the formula, I used it to to coincide with the four quart quart jars. So then, um, and they do look prettier. Um, especially on my website. So, um, <laughs> so uh, basically, uh, either way is fine. Um, I think probably the mylar bags are are more cost efficient than than using the jars, and they are easier to travel with. So. Um, that said, though, day to day use in the home, when you're done with the jar, you rinse it out, you make sure it's really dry, and you you, you reuse it over and over again, right? Yes, you can reuse it over and over again. And um, since I use the dry pack canning method um, by using oxygen absorbers or vacuum sealing it, those seals can also be reused as long as they haven't been, you know, uh, used for pressure canning or uh, hot water bath canning. Awesome. And that, that was, I was going to bring that up, that since you're not doing a pressure can and there's no real heat there, even the lids can be reused. Um 
But one of the big, I think, reasons that people also don't open that big giant number 10 can of beef cubes or whatever, uh, in addition to being, being intimidated by what it's actually for, is that they're thinking, well, right now that thing says it's good for 15 years or 20 years or whatever, and I don't want to blow that. That's why I bought it. So once we've done this and broken it up and used this dry canning method you're speaking of, what's the shelf life of this stuff? How is that affected? Um, the shelf life is between 7 and 10 years. You know, if you do it in the jars and even in mar- mylar bags, you're going to want to store it in, you know, a cool, dry, dark place, um, you know, to keep the sun off of it and, and uh, just to kind of keep your, your stash secure. Um, but, uh, yeah, you want to eat what you store, too. So, you know, so you're constantly rotating it. And you want to get used to what your, you know, these meals, just in case you do have to use them in the case of emergency. And when we're looking at something like meat, how does the the cost compare to using fresh meat? Is there any kind of cost advantage there, or is it about the same, or a little bit more, or what have you? It, I don't know. With today's prices going up, I mean, it's. It, it, I haven't done the math on it, but right now it's probably you know close to to equal. Um, but, you know, the advantage is that uh, you have a longer shelf life. If you buy a steak, to, you know, at the grocery store and you put it in the freezer and you're only going to last, what, six months with that. Um, and in the jars, being dehydrated, you know, the shelf life is is uh, uh, seven to ten years. Sure. So so the the cost of that meat is, going to go up from day to day. I mean, you can see the prices rising, you know, um, as we speak. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it, it's we call in the, the high-end business pollutant world the capital deferral, the advantage being I can buy a ton of it today, and then I can use it over a long number of years, and uh, at the time of deferring the inflation all the way until I run out of my last bulk purchase. And, and then you're using this method to, to actually make it more practical for day-to-day use, where uh, you know, I, I think that some people would look at this and go, well, yeah, I could make beef and broccoli stir-fry with this stuff, but now I have to open this giant can of beef cubes and this giant can of broccoli and maybe some carrots and take a little bit out of each one. And it, I think a lot of people, they get into make a mental lock on using these large storage uh, mediums because they, it, it doesn't make sense to them to do that. Now I'm going to have this big can with, uh, opened, and I've, but now you're breaking it up. Let's say, well, let's get all that stuff prepackaged into meals. Right, right. And then, you know, if if you need to go with them, then you can go. Otherwise, if you're going to be in an emergency situation, what are you going to do with all these cans? Are you going to know how to cook with them, or, or what are you going to do? That's what makes it so much easier. And it's, it, it was scary for me to open that first 10-pound can. <laughs> it was very scary. I'm like, because I didn't know what I was doing. And uh, and now I'm I'm very confident, so... And the meals taste great, so I couldn't ask for anything better. Yeah, um, I have to can completely agree with that kind of uh, that angle to take on it. So you talked about dry canning methods. So you could, could you give people just like the basics and how simple it really is to take these meals in a jar and make them stable? Yeah, um, the first thing you want to do is is um, you know sterilize your jars, make sure that they're clean because you don't want any bacteria in the jars because you're going to put this food in there and bacteria grows if if they're not clean. So then you're going to want to check the rims to make sure they're not cracked, just like you would do with normal canning. 
you know, you want to make sure that there's no uh, chips in your in your rims and uh, before you use them. And then you want to, when you do fill them, you want to, you know, fill, take up all of the space in the jar because we, we don't want to leave any oxygen in there. So, um, so then when you're, after you've filled your jar, you just want to make sure that you clean the rim off really well so you get a really good tight seal. And by sticking the oxygen absorber in there, it's going to, it's going to take that lid and suck it down. So, so then you're, that's what makes your, your meal shelf stable because there's no air in it. Um, and you can do that by using, you know, the oxygen absorber or, or using the attachment to your food saver just so all that air is completely sucked out of there. And then you just want to uh, label the jar um, for what it is, and then um, somehow you have your own method of, uh, of putting the instructions on, whether it be um, uh, a label or if you keep it in a book and just look it up when it's time because basically all you're going to do is add water to these meals. You're not going to, there's not a whole lot of anything else to add. So it makes it, it makes it pretty easy. You know, I was going to ask you, how often do you find yourself yanking a jar of stuff out of your, your, your cupboard and using it to make a lunch or a dinner? Um, well, my son was notorious for taking all of my meals. I would, I would have them all stocked and he would, he would come over to my house after work and he would just, he would just help himself to one of my jar meals, and and um, it was pretty easy for him because he would he'd be on lunch and he would just take a jar and add the water and and make it and and he'd be a happy camper. So um, I I try to use it use a jar meal at least once a week. So um, so I'm familiar with it and you know my recipes and so I know how much water and and so I just get used to it. In case I do have to use them every day for whatever reason, you know, I would have to. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I, the other thing I get from people all the time is, how do I share preparedness with the people that are, let's say, the uninitiated for right now? And, and I find that if you were to go over to your friend's house and hand them a, a number 10 can of ham cubes and say, you should use this in your cooking, they'll probably look at you like you have eyes inside of your ears instead of in your eye sockets uh, if they're not familiar with the concepts that we talk about here all the time. But it seems to me that if you went over to a friend's house with a couple of these jars, and I don't use the word pretty often, but they are pretty the way they're put together, and said, hey, here's a, a, you know, a squash casserole, here's a beef and broccoli thing, here's the, I'll, I'll add this much water, throw it in, heat it up, and it's ready to go, that a lot of people would go, well, that's really cool, thank you. Have you found that? Have you found it as maybe a way, like a soft way to share the concept of preparedness with people? I have. I, you know, I, I kind of feel them out to see where they stand, and and then I slowly approach them with it. Um, a lot of people don't think that far ahead, which is kind of sad. I guess they weren't a Girl Scout um, <laughs> because our motto was always be prepared. Um, so um, if I if I'm going to approach them with it, I usually use the corn because the corn tastes like um, candy. I mean, it is so sweet and it's so good, and. Uh, um, just right out of the can. So, I mean, they go, ooh, what are you going to do with all this? You know, how does it taste? And actually, I have, I'm going to take a jar to work next week, and we're going to do that for lunch for me and the girls because they, they, can't, they can't grasp the concept of, that we're just going to add water to this meal and it's going to be a real meal. 
so um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so you wonder how those guys called astronauts survive without that, then you know. <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of funny, um, but uh, yeah, I, I guess uh, just I kind of go at it slowly. Like a lot of people who know me personally don't really know that I have a blog, and when they do find out, they're like, "Wow, tell me more," you know, because I never, I never thought that far ahead. And uh, our lives do get really busy, so uh, and we get involved with so many things that we don't think about the future and 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 uh, what I look I like to look at it as uh, um, an investment, you know, for whatever happens. Absolutely, you know, that is that is my safety net. I have um, I have five grandchildren, and they've been my guinea pigs, and bless their hearts, they have. <laughs> They have been really troopers, and they, you know, half the time they don't even know that I'm feeding them freeze-dried and dehydrated food. And my grandson, he he loves the taco beef and cheese, and, you know, that's what he wanted for his birthday was a jar meal. So, I mean, how exciting is that? I mean, it says a lot. That's awesome. (laughs) That's awesome. Okay, guys, here, you got your new Christmas gift. You make jar meals for the kids, take a silver dollar to the lid and give them that. That would be a hell of a lot better than a Mattel toy made in China with lead paint on it, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. Yes, it would. So, so it uh, not go beef and cheese a lot. Cool. So, like, on the whole concept of the show, which is living a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't, it, it also seems like a good way to kind of, if you use the word, I guess, would be evangelized preparedness, that if someone were to stock up on some of this stuff and then follow these, this methodology and make up, you know, a bunch of pre-made meals going several months out, they're, you're kind of tricking them there, if you want to use it that way, into being a little bit prepared. But I think a very good case could may, be made to the modern housewife that, look, you know what's in here. There's no dice from Mydrin, Hydra, blah, 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 blah in it. Right. You can right. if you make this up, let's say you made up, um, I don't know, 26 meals and you use this one night a week instead of having to come home and cook something complicated and take that one night off your back. And you could do all of that in a day. It seems like there's a lifestyle improvement there in addition to a preparedness principle. Oh, I agree. Um um, the sauce mixes that I've created has, you know, I know exactly what's in them. I mean, there's no artificial stuff whatsoever. So, I mean, they're really, really uh, healthy for you. And uh, my whole my whole goal when I started, you know, this for my family was to create 30 dinner meals, 30 lunch meals, and 30 breakfast meals. So that if I made each meal one time, or 12 times, make each meal... 12 times, then I would have enough um, food storage for a year, meals and jars for a year. That's very cool. That's, I mean, and, and, and you get a lot of variety that way. Um, and I, I guess, like, my other question is, I've heard you say a couple times my formula. So do you have a formula for creating these jar meals? I do. Um, uh, what I have done is I have taken – I have ta- I've made – created five different categories and in those categories um, we'll start out with the first one being um, uh, meat. Um, I made a list of all of the freeze-dried meats available on the market. So I've added you know the chopped ham and the chopped beef and chicken and uh, sausage and 
um, the list goes on, but uh, you're, you're kind of following me here. So I make a list of all of the meats in that category. And then the second category, I would uh, I made a list of all of the um, rice and beans and pasta that I could possibly think of. And the third category um, was vegetables. I just made a list of all of the vegetables that my family likes to eat and uh, added to that to the list. And the uh, fourth category was uh, sauces, you know, sauce mixes, whether it be, you know, spaghetti sauce or, you know, in the dry form, of course. Um, Just made a list of all of the sauces that I had to work with. And then the last category is cheese, um, where, uh, as far as I know, there's um, um, cheddar, cheddar cheese, Monterey, Colby Jack, mozzarella, that you know come in the freeze-dried form, and I've I put that in a separate category. So when I go to make a jar meal, um, there's only four cups in it that you can work with in that quart jar. So what I've done is I normally take like pick pick from one category would be um, the meat. Um, so let's say I wanted to pick ham, and I would put one cup of one cup of ham in the bottom of the jar and then adding to it I would probably um, I'm just going off the top of my head here so I would take um, from the next category which would be the pasta rice potatoes and beans I would take maybe two cups of sliced um, uh, potatoes and add those to my jar and uh, then I would would uh, figure out what kind of sauce mix I'm going to use because I really don't count the sauce mix in into the jar because it can be shaken down and fill in all the empty holes. So for this example, I think I'll, I'll use the powdered um, mix of cream of mushroom soup, and I'd, I would make that in advance. So I would use uh, whatever the amount is that equals one can of, of cream of mushroom soup, and you can find that recipe on my blog as well. Um, then I would want to add, you know, cheese to the top of this when I'm done because it would be like cheesy ham and potatoes. So I would figure out what I have left to work with, with the, with the, I want to put bell peppers in there and I want to put onions. And so I would, I would figure out what amount I have left to fill that jar and then saving, you know, one cup of, of space for the cheese, which I would put in a in a baggie and put it on top. So when I went to make the meal, I could take that baggie of cheese out, rehydrate it, and add it to the meal when it was finished. So did that make sense? That makes perfect sense. I mean, you know what you have to work with. Then you take your categories and you backfill the number of cups available. And the nice thing about the jars is they're always going to be the same. I've, I've never right. found a jar stretcher, at least not one that worked yet. And see, your, your creativity on what you like is unlimited. I mean, you, you do have the limitations of working with the, the powdered sauces and the, and the, and the dehydrated and freeze-dried food, but it's not as hard as a person would think. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I think it's just a fascinating way to do things. Um, do you have maybe one or two of your recipes that are like your kind of your favorites, like you really, really like either to share or just personally like to eat? 
Um, it would have to be the taco beef and cheese. Um, that, that was the first, one of the first meals I created. And, uh, like I said, my grandson loves that one. And, uh, my other favorite one is I love the, just the, the sauce for the spaghetti. And it's very simple. I mean, it's a basic recipe with, um, thrive, thrive, um, uh, tomato powder in it. And, and it, it's just really rich and, and it's good. It's like, Wow, and you can add mushrooms and hamburgers to that, you know, the freeze-dried mushrooms and hamburgers. So, I mean, it's unlimited. You could make a a pizza meal jar and be able to create a pizza, which I find amazing. I mean, it is unlimited as far as you can think if you if you want if you're a creative person. So, it's a lot of fun. Now, you say you could make a pizza. Would, would I have would I have everything in that jar and I have maybe a separate jar for my uh, dough? Um, yeah, you, you could, you could do that. Um, uh, you could put all the pizza ingredients like in baggies and separate and then rehydrate and then put it together. Yeah, it would, that, that was going to be one of my next challenges was to do a pizza in a jar. So pizza I haven't quite jar. figured it out because I like, because I like to keep everything, I like to keep all of the ingredients in one jar. So maybe I could do that. I think I could. That sounds cool. So, I know you have a ton of recipes, so do you have a way like my listeners could get um, some of your sauce mixes, jar meal recipes, and things like that? Yeah, if you go to my blog, it's rainydayfoodstorage.blogspot.com. Um, there's a recipe tab, and there's a sauce mix recipe, sauces and mixes tab on, on my blog. And there you could just get it, get it right there, or you could email me. I have three um, three special recipes that I give away on my blog for you just have to go to my blog and request it it's under the three free meals in a jar of recipes and and then there's plenty of other recipes that they can copy and paste or print or do whatever on there and of course if they have any questions they can email me I love answering emails <laughs> do you want to give your email out or just say people should go to the blog to do that um, it's rainy it's my email is rainy day food storage at gmail.com. Cool. So do you have a uh, – I, I saw some rumblings there about a cookbook coming out. Is that uh, 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 something that's occurred or something that will happen someday? Um, it's almost finished. I'm almost ready to put it on my blog. Um, my son was um, um, encouraged – or he ended up with a brain injury this past summer, which put everything on hold for me. So I'm just now getting back and trying to get it all finished up and get it up up there. So, so uh, people have more more recipes to to work with for their food storage. Uh, is so the author of is the author of four books, three of which are incomplete? I I understand. <laughs> Pardon me. Can you say that one more time? I said, as the author of four books, three of which have not been finished, I completely understand. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I'm working hard at trying to get that finished. So, um, so I'm gonna, I'm just gonna get it up there just as soon as I can. I'm hoping to have it up by the first of the year. That would be really cool. Well, hey, uh, Jennifer, this has been a great interview. I really appreciate you being on here with us and giving us kind of a different look at using long-term food storage stuff, especially the stuff that comes in the giant cans. Yes, I, I was, I, I was very uh, pleased to be able to help anyone who you know wants to learn more about how to prepare so thank you so much for having me 
You want to give the uh, website again uh, out one more time for people so they can get by your site and see all your cool recipes? Um, my blog is at uh, rainydayfoodstorage.blogspot.com. Excellent. So, and there they can find awesome information. Cool. And I'll make sure there's a link to that in today's show notes so people can uh, find your website easily if they're, uh, if they're on ours. And, again, I appreciate you coming on the show today, and uh, thanks for uh, all the work you're doing there. Well, thank you. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Jennifer S. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Nobody up there cares, they're living for today.